Uh, we have been in this series called The School of Prayer, where we have been exploring the ways that we see Jesus pray in the Gospels. And what's been really distinctive about this series we've been in is we're not looking how Jesus teaches about prayer. We're not looking about how he even tells us to pray, but we're specifically looking at these moments in Jesus's life and ministry when we see him praying. See, the, the moments when we get to observe, we get this lens on what did it look like in Jesus's own prayer life. See, what's really important for us to take note of is that oftentimes in the Western education system, mostly learning is done through hearing and talking, right? We, we learn by hearing a teacher speak to us, they communicate some information, and then we as students, we, we memorize it, we, we internalize it, we kind of just collect that information and put it in, and that's how we learn. But what's interesting about the relationship between a rabbi, Jesus, and his students, the disciples, is that learning was both an auditory verbal thing, but it was also something that you've watched, It was something you saw. See, there's a reason that throughout the Gospels, we hear this thing that it says that the disciples are following Jesus. They're literally like walking behind him all of his time. People will ask Jesus, hey, where are you staying? Because they want to be his disciples. They want to learn from him. Because learning in the disciple in the disciple-rabbi relationship was not just about learning the information that the rabbi was communicating. It was literally following the exact things that the rabbi was doing. Disciples would like pay attention to how a rabbi cut bread. They would pay attention to these little minutia of how they lived their life, how they talked to, who they talked to. They'd pay attention to all these things. Yes, it was important to know what a rabbi was teaching, but it was even more important to know how a rabbi was living. So that's why in the school of prayer, we really want to know how did Jesus pray and what can we learn from that? So before we get into our passage, I want to talk a little bit about what we've seen so far. In our first week, we talked about this way that Jesus, from the core of his being, knew that God heard him in prayer. We saw the story of the resurrection of Lazarus and how Jesus claimed, proclaimed to God, you hear me, I know you hear me. And that the, the nature of our prayers that we are invited to is to boldly know that on the other end of our prayers is a God who listens with full attention. And then we saw the practices of Jesus where he would withdraw to places of solitude throughout the busyness of his life. He was doing incredibly amazing miracles, preaching, doing all these incredible things, serving his community. But throughout those times, even in the worst of moments of his life, he would withdraw to be alone and just be before his God. His his doing came out of the flowing of his being with God. And that's the invitation for us to follow as well. And today we get a snapshot of this vulnerable moment of Jesus before God in prayer, of him pouring his heart out before God. And before we get into that, I want to ask us a question. Who is the person that you can be most honest with? Who is the person in your life that you are not afraid of mincing words, you are not afraid of just bearing it all out? The person that you can put all of your cards on the table. It's something that's, I think, incredibly important for us. It might be a parent, it might be a friend, it might be a partner, or the person who who, who played that role for you might not even be in your life anymore. And there's a grief, there's a loneliness there. And I think that loneliness comes out of a a deep-seated longing in our hearts. It's It's a human thing. It's an ancient thing. From the beginning, we've always needed people and persons in our life 
who we could bear our full self with. In the, in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 to 3, it talks about this idea of nakedness, of the fact that the first people that God, they were able to be naked with each other. And it's not just about being, you know, fully grooving in your birthday suit. It was, it was this image of people who had nothing to hide. People who were completely unashamed of showing their full self to one another, their full self to God. And it's a thing, a longing we still have today. And it is in this passage that we see Jesus fully vulnerable before the living God, before his Father. And it's this example for us to follow in today. So let's uh, take a look at this prayer. And for a little background of what's happening here in this prayer, Jesus is in Jerusalem And he is only a couple hours, one day, from when he will have to suffer the cross. When he will have to be executed by the government, by the religious institutions of this day. And the thing is, Jesus knew that this was what he was going to be facing. He knew from the beginning that going to Jerusalem was a dangerous act. And that there were people there that had already put a hit out on him. This plan was already happening. See, if you remember in our first week when we talked about the story of Jesus traveling to Bethany, which is a town around Jerusalem, to to raise Lazarus from the dead, you might remember that both the disciples and Jesus, there's a little bit of a hesitancy to go back to to this area to, to heal Lazarus, to care for Lazarus. And the reason there was this hesitancy was at this point in Jesus's life and ministry, Jesus was already in grave danger. The rumors about what people wanted to, wanted to do to Jesus was already at its, at its peak. People were looking to kill Jesus. And by going to the seat of religious power, Jerusalem, Jesus was signing his own death sentence. So Jesus waits two days outside of Jerusalem and travels to Bethany, all so that he can just grieve with Mary and Martha, and on the other side of that, raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Jesus saw Lazarus' life as more important than his own, and he made that trip. And what's even more breathtaking about this is that resurrection, that miracle that Jesus performs for Lazarus, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that that's the first domino that essentially leads to the trial, the execution, and the murder of Jesus on the cross. Jesus traded his own life for Lazarus' life. And this is why he is praying. He knows what is about to happen. He knows the plots that are about to be put before him. And this is how he prays. He's asking God, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can face my own death. So let's read that prayer that, that he prays before God. Here's what it says. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. See, Jesus in this moment is fully vulnerable before God, fully honest before God, saying that, I don't know if I want this. See, it's, it's crazy because you would think that Jesus is God in the flesh. 
He is all of divinity, all of the bigness of who God is, made into flesh, performed. He is the perfect example of life with God being lived to the fullness and life itself being the fullness. It's, it's God as a human. And you would think that that person would be perfectly connected with God, never disagreeing, never being worried, never being confused. And yet, in this moment, that perfection looks like a fight. That perfection before God, that perfect relationship to the Father, looks like, I don't know about this, God. I don't know if I want this. And it's this full nakedness of Jesus' desires, Jesus' will, Jesus' fear being laid out before God. And This might bother us, because I think we're often used to thinking that when we approach God, we need to be respectful, we need to be, you know, secondary, we need to be afraid, we we should just, you know, filter ourselves a little bit. But that's not what we see in this passage. Jesus says, take this cup from me. And it's this full bridled honesty, just completely open to God. And what I love about this is that this is actually a just the next step of a history of God's people in the Bible who were fully willing to be honest with God, fully willing to disagree with God, fully willing to talk to God without fear, or without filter, without anything. And let's actually take a look at that. This is, this is a history, there's a history of this. In the book of Psalms, I've picked out three uh, Psalms for us to look at. The first is from Psalm 88, where the psalmist says, Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? It's this full expression of loneliness, of despair, of sadness, of grief. The farness from God. He doesn't say that, God, you kind of feel far, but I know you're close. He says, no, God, it feels like you fully rejected me. You have, why have you hidden yourself from me? And it goes on in the life of David, Psalm 22. He says this phrase, which is a pretty famous saying. David says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. What is distinctive to me about this psalm, about this prayer, is that David is not saying, it feels like you've forsaken me, God. God, it feels like you're far away, and I really know you're close by, and I really know that you're eventually going to come and save me. No, it's a full accusation. David's relationship with God is this full honesty. He tells God, you have forsaken me. You've abandoned me, and I need to know what you're doing. You need to get it together. It's it's this full moment of David has no fear in hiding his brokenness, hiding his disdain, his fear. He fully puts himself before God. And there's this last psalm that really, it's even hard to read sometimes. See, in the book of Psalms, there's actually a collection of Psalms that are the Psalms of anger, of, of anger towards the people that are doing injustice, people that are doing wrong things to David, to the, to the nation of Israel. And David prays this prayer of anger before God, asking for justice. And this is how he describes his enemies, the people that are doing wrong. He says this, May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along. Like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Stunned silence is the only response to hearing a prayer like that, to hearing an insult like that, to hearing anger like that. 
it's a yikes. It's like, it's crazy it's to, to hear this in the scriptures. And yet, this is how David prayed. And what I love about this is that the, the Psalms are the hymn book of the people of God. They are the songs that they would sing to worship God. So when they would come, you know, on their Sabbath day to worship, these are the types of lyrics they'd be singing. Now, Eliana, our worship director, is an incredible worship director. She does a great job at picking songs for us each week. But can you imagine? Can you imagine Eliana picking out her songs for the week, really meditating on God's heart for us and being like, should I sing the song about God hating us and God abandoning us? Or, or maybe I should pick that song about wanting to crush our enemies and wanting God to really show his stuff. That's crazy. That's, we don't have songs like that. We don't have songs that are, that are like this in our kind of lectionary of, of music. And I'll say this, you know, this is not all that there is to life with God. This is not the be-all, end-all. See, life, life with God, it says in the New Testament that the fruits of the Spirit, the fruit, the outcome of a life with God is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, faithfulness, all those things, all those good things that God desperately desires for us. But at the same time, I think our, our instinct, our kind of, you know, first action is to think that the way we get to those things is by kind of just playing hopscotch, is by, you know, jumping over all of the uncomfortable emotions, jumping over all the things inside us that we're not super comfortable with, and not bringing that before God, and instead just kind of hopscotching over it, you know, like, I'm looking at all my bitterness towards all the friends that have left me behind, towards my parents, towards my family, I'm just going to step over that and go to patience. Or I'm, I'm thinking about all of my sadness, all of the grief I have about the life that I thought I would have, the things that I thought that I would have at my age, but I don't have them yet. And instead, we try to just avoid that and go to joy. And we have the spirituality that just avoids and that runs away and that just tries to hop over every uncomfortable feeling. But the Bible, the living word of God, the worship book, of the ancient people of God paints a very different picture of what spirituality looks like. It's this full, honestly, this lack of fear about bearing our full selves before God, even the things that are ugly, the ugliest parts of ourselves are actually included in the act of worship. It's a beautiful thing, and I think it is of grave, grave importance because I think the longer that we avoid these uncomfortable things, the, our anger, our fear, our sadness, the longer that we just stuff those things away, the more numb we get to experiencing the life around us and what's actually happening in our lives and in our world. And the more numb that we get to ourselves and what's happening to us, the more numb we get to one another. And the less likely we are to intervene when those around us need help the less likely we are to be a people who is known for love and generosity because we don't know how to let love and generosity reach us ourselves. 
this week, if you have been um, paying attention to the news, you would know about the release of the body cam footage of the murder of Tyree Nichols. The appropriate feeling. I don't want to say that there's a singular appropriate feeling, but I think it is moments like this where we are faced with our personal, our communal injustice that we need psalms like that. Psalms that are not unwilling to face the ugliness that we see around us and within. As we look at a system of policing in our country that has a history of violence, a history of injustice, we need to be able to wrestle honestly because otherwise we will just be a mute people, a numb people, a people who are unwilling to speak up, reach out, or work when we see things that are not as they should be. As we explore the history, as we, as we take honest look about the history from Rodney King to Tyree Nichols. We need these psalms. It needs to be a part of our worship. I think without that, our gospel is mute and it is blind to the cries of our neighbors, the cries of the people around us who God is calling us to intervene and step into. This honesty, this need to be able to wrestle in this way, does not just have systemic social impacts, but I think it speaks to the very interpersonal lives that we live with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family, partners. And I think we need that. I think we need this kind of honesty because without it, we can never be our full selves or allow others to be our full selves. Uh, I've been married for three years. Uh, actually, no, I've only been married for two and a half years. My marriage could not even enter 3K yet. It's a baby. It's a little, little child. And uh, if many of you have met Emily. She's my wife. She's incredible. Um, I would recommend, if you get married, marry someone more mature than you. It's a great thing. It was a great choice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it right now. It was a really good choice for me to do that. And um, I've been very grateful for our marriage and the ways that we've grown together and the way she's taught me. And we got married in March 2020, and we got to spend a lot of time together. We've gotten a lot of reps of marriage in at this point. It's been, it's been good. And I, I remember early on in our marriage, when we would have a disagreement, when we would have a fight, I just, I would shut down. And all the uncomfortable feelings I was feeling, all my annoyances, my anger, I just didn't want to share them. And I didn't want to tell, the, tell her about it. And for me, it was this idea. It was that hopscotch thing of like, I need to somehow avoid all of my anger, my annoyance, so that I can get to love. And, you know, I was a enlightened, I was a evolved New Yorker. So I journaled. I popped out my journal, and when we get into an argument, I'd, I'd go to my journal and just start writing in it, just, just absolutely like tearing pages up as I'm writing through it, pressing the pen down so hard. And we're a New York couple. We live in an apartment. There's not a lot of place to hide in a, in a New York City apartment. So she would see me doing this, and she'd be like, Jordan, what are you doing? Like, what's, like I see you. I, I can tell that you're angry. And I'll be like, honey, I love you. 
from the deepest parts of my being. I can't believe she would say that to me. I can't. What was she thinking? And she'd just be like, Jordan, just talk to me. Like, I'm right here. And I'd just be like, I have nothing to say. I have so much to say about this woman. I can't believe. And she'd just be like, Jordan, I'm here, like, in the flesh. I'm right in front of you. Just tell me what's going on. And it was this moment where Emily was just like, show me. Show me what you're really thinking. Show me what you're really feeling. We are invited to be a people that does not view any single part of us as too ugly to show to God and to one another. That every part of ourselves is available to God, is available to God's people. I think it's, it's deeply important what Emily taught me, in, and she continues to teach me, is that sometimes love is a fight. Sometimes love is worth a conflict. It's worth a disagreement. It's worth that kind of fight. And when we have this fear of rocking the boat and we need to disengage with conflict, it actually leads us to not more relationship with one another, but actually less. So let's look at that, let's look at that scripture that... that we, we've read again. This is what he said. This is what Jesus prayed. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, and yet not my will, but yours be done. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. It was through Jesus's wrestling, through his conflict with the living God, that he was actually strengthened. That strength came to him to continue to engage. What I love is what is that strength for? It's not to resolve the issue. It's not to give Jesus peace about it and to allow him to go forward. What the strength is for is to pray more earnestly. It's to endure longer in the wrestling, to continue fighting, to continue engaging, to continue wrestling with God because God is worth it. Avoidance is not better than a fight. This is what Jesus talks to the disciples about being the temptation. Look, let's look at that next slide. It says that on reaching the place, he told them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. And when he arose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, and he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. See, the temptation Jesus is talking about is disengagement from the God that knows you fully and wholly. This temptation to hide parts of ourselves, to hide what we are uncomfortable with, to hide what we think is ugly. And Jesus is reminding them, pray, pray, wrestle, fight, whatever you need to do to remain connected to the living God. I think uh, when we think about this passage, sometimes when we picture it in our mind, we can sometimes have this very, like, three stooges reaction to the, to the disciples, like, that, like, you know, Jesus is tiptoeing to his disciples and finds them sleeping. They have, like, the snot bubble, like, they're wearing that kind of, like, old-school nightcap, like, uh, like, Scrooge McDuck, you know what I mean? Like, he, like that, we, that he, they find him, then they're just, like, kind of fast asleep, having really sweet dreams. But I actually, reading this passage this time, I had this deep empathy for the disciples because... Let's read verse uh, 45. They were exhausted from sorrow. 
The disciples themselves were completely aware about what Jesus was about to go through. Their friend, their closest companion, the person that they had shared their full lives with for the last three years was on death row. And they were, they were mere moments from his execution. And these disciples, in this moment of grief, of loss, of fear, they just can't imagine facing the day. They can't imagine, imagine having to live in a world without their closest friend. And if you are like the disciples, you might have moments like that in your life. You might be facing that right now. Those days where it feels like you just can't get out of bed. Where the thought of just, the mere thought of even being alive for another day feels like a weight too heavy to bear. And Jesus' invitations to the disciples and to us today is not be joyful. It's not rejoice. It's not forget about the old things. It's get up and pray. It's bring all of that to the living God. There's no promise that he will immediately take them away. He'll immediately resolve everything. But the living God, the Father in heaven who hears us, will give us strength to continue to wrestle with him, to continue to fight, to continue to struggle and ask God for more. It's hard to imagine being able to do that. It's, it's incredible that Jesus, in this most stressful moment of his life, he's about to die that he would go into this garden to pray, that he would take the time. He's not running away. He's not barricading the doors. He goes to pray. And the question is, how, does, how is someone able to do that? How do you get to that point? And what I love is that this passage actually tells us. It's in verse 39. This is what it says. Jesus went out as usual. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And that's where he prayed. See, in the most stressful moment of Jesus' life, he's on, like he's on his deathbed. What does he do? He goes about as usual. This is why the past few weeks we've been talking about how important it is to cultivate a practice, cultivate a habit of a life with God, taking moments in our day to be with God in silence, taking moments in our day to share our hearts with God. Because when the going gets tough, we fall back on our habits. There's a saying we have in our emotionally healthy spirituality class and our emotionally healthy relationship class, which is that when we are in moments of extreme stress, we always revert back to our most basic training. We will always go back to our most base instinct. So for me, in that example of marriage, my most base instinct was to hide and to, to store everything up and to avoid and just avoid uncomfortable things, avoid uncomfortable conversations, avoid conflict. And in moments of stress, in moments of disagreement, I fell back on my most basic instinct. But what happens for Jesus is that through a life of habit, of going before God, communing with the living God, in the moment of stress for him, habit became instinct. And when he was faced with the hardest period of his life, he fell straight back 
into the hands of God in prayer. Even if it was uncomfortable, even if it was difficult, he fell back into that. See, uh, in that course that we talk about, uh, when, we, when we do the course, it's really funny to me because I did this too. Oftentimes, every time we start the Emotionally Healthy Relationship course, week one, everyone's, okay, how do I fight? How, how do I fight? I just want to resolve this conflict that we have, and I really want to just solve this problem. And honestly, I was on the same way. I'm not going to lie. See, when I took the Emotionally Healthy Relationship course with Emily, and we've done it a couple times at this point, oftentimes I go to it being like, I want to be emotionally healthy this year. And I also want Emily to know how right I am. That's, that's the goal of this course. We're going to make it happen. But what's funny is that the first six weeks of the course, what's really interesting to me is that they specifically say throughout the course, do not bring anything up that is volatile. Do not bring up anything that has anything to do with an active fight, an active disagreement, or an active conflict. Instead, let's just pick very easy topics. Things that, you know, honestly, sometimes the easy topics feel like the worst ones sometimes. But, but it's... it's it's this idea that, like, we actually need to build up a habit first before we can dive straight into the most uncomfortable thing in the world, right? And I love this because so many times I approach a fight, and I approach a fight even with God with this idea of, like, I need to show God that I'm right. I need to show God how to, how, what, what really is. But when we get to week seven, you know, we, we practice this thing called clean fighting. And my approach to clean fighting is often this, right? Like, a clean fight is a negotiation between two people so that Emily can know that Jordan is right. But that is not what a clean fight is. And I think it also is an image of what wrestling with God is. This is what a clean fight actually is. A clean fight is a negotiation between two people for the sake of the relationship for the sake of continued life together, for the sake of authenticity, for the sake of nakedness for each other, of two people who can be fully themselves with one another. And this is how Jesus approached wrestling with God. We can look at Jesus' prayer real quick. He says, Father, if you are willing, he names his relationship with God. He does not dismiss God. He does not say, God, you're far away. He says, you are my Father, you are my God. And he very clearly says, take this cup from me. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't lie. He doesn't hide things. He says exactly what he hopes and desires. And then finally, he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And it's this image of love. See, there there are times when we can pray those Psalms prayers, full intensity, unbridled honesty, kind of allowing ourselves to be fully honest with God. But I think this is an image of wrestling that Jesus gives us, of love of God being made fully manifested and revealed, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, it says this thing, that love rejoices in truth. Love throws a party when someone finally says something true. It's this idea that love is all about the truth, it doesn't want things hidden. It doesn't want things avoided. It wants the truth. And we see that. Take this cup from me. But at the same time in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love does not demand its own way. Love is willing to put aside its agenda. Love is willing to say no to themselves for the sake of continued life together. And this is exactly what Jesus does. The reward of a life with God is more God. The reward of wrestling with God is continued wrestling with God. 
It's more and more of God. And that is what I desire for us today. 